The Tablet Show, episode 105, with guest Kirby Turner. Recorded live Friday, September 20th, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Kirby Turner about his experiences building iPad applications. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support, online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to The Tablet Show. Carl and Richard here again, yeah. talking about tablets and tablets and phones and stuff. And- mobile what's up richard uh you know keep plunking along we're in the midst of our when this show comes out at least we're in the midst of our crazy tour yeah the whole dates of our fall tour are uh at netrocks.com right at the top of the page by the way so if you want the sign up links and the dates they're right there there's not a separate page just right at the top it's not everything though that only goes as far as the beginning of november it doesn't even talk about the u.s road trip well what i plan to do there is sort of as the dates roll off we'll add the next one on so there's always nine dates up there ahead cool. yeah we're always nine dates ahead that's good well we'll yeah. do everything we can to make it visible yep it's a lot of stuff we a lot just of keep stuff. traveling a lot of stuff where are we now actually as this comes out this publishes on October 7th. Needless to say, we're reporting ahead of that. So that is Galway in Ireland. Galway. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful uh, west coast of Ireland. Absolutely. Nice. All right. Well, let's uh, get started with Better Know Framework here. Everybody, right, what do you got? Hey, you know the dispose pattern, right? I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. Episode 10. Chris Sells <laughs> talking about garbage collection in .NET. Yes. I disposable, right? Yeah, that's a long time ago, man. Well, what would you say if I told you that JavaScript is getting disposed? What? All right, not just JavaScript, but Windows Library for JavaScript 2.0, the preview controls. Oh, so this is WinJS in uh, Windows 8.1, mm-hmm. the, the new API, the dispose API. If you go to tinyurl.com slash dispose, uh, down at the bottom of the page, the dispose model is a new pattern that allows elements and controls to release resources at the end of their lifetime to prevent memory leaks. An element or control can implement it optionally. Windows library for JavaScript 2.0 preview controls that have resources to release now implement this API. Interesting. Can you imagine a world where JavaScript programmers actually think about memory management? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I know over on the .NET Rock side, we've talked fairly often about how SPAs, the single-page applications, have this issue about memory consumption. Yeah. Although, I mean, this is specifically WinJS. True. So, yeah. But it is an interesting idea. Yeah, well, these things have a way of creeping into, you know, into everyday JavaScript. It, we, we sort of talk about, JavaScript developers, the majority of them as just being, you know, sort of using it without really understanding it, you know, and uh, the you know, memory management is one of those things that you really kind of have to understand. Yeah, I'm with you. Mm. But anyway, it is interesting. And I just thought it was funny to say JavaScript and dispose in the same <laughs> sentence. <so. laughs> well, you messed with my head. <laughs> well, there you go. Awesome. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 100, which was, you know, our 100th episode. You and I were talking about what had happened the past two years. 
Right. And this comment comes from Manny McVicker, who says, Hey, Carl and Richard, great show as usual, and a massive congratulations on Richie Show 100. I'm a big fan of the Tablet Show and Donna Rocks, and I've learned so much over the past three, four years from listening to you and your guests, so I really appreciate the work you put in, and long may it go on. I came across this modular concept for mobile phones today called Phone Blocks. And that's blocks, B-L-O-K-S. Okay. And was really impressed. I would love to know what you two think about it. I think it's relevant to the tablet show. And they are looking to raise the profile of the project and get developers and designers. And I thought your audience might be interested too. And you can check out and he gave a YouTube link. But I'll give you a link. Actually, if you just go to foamblocks.com without the C in foam blocks, uh, you'll see the main site and Thunderclap and all those sorts of things. So what this is, is a completely modular cell phone. So you have a backboard that looks like a breadboard. It's just full of pinholes. Mm -hmm. And then you clip the various features you want in your cell phone into it. So the backboard has the screen and stuff on it. But you say you want a big camera. So there's a big camera module. Right. You, you know, what do you want Wi-Fi? Well, that's a module. Do you want uh, 2G, 3G, LTE, each different module? Right. And different processing blocks and so forth. I mean, it's a really interesting idea. I don't know if it's achievable, though. You know, this is a prototype right now. They're just making an experiment. They, because modular devices aren't that unusual. Virtually every laptop except for Ultrabooks are exactly that. You know, they're modularized machines. You can replace out CPUs, GPUs, different radio sets. You know, they're all able to be changed. Uh, the downside to modularity is bulk and power consumption. Yeah. So... You know, if you just if you choose to go this way and plug these modules and have these pluggable modules, it's going to be a bigger phone, probably a bit more expensive, actually. You know, the question is, does it make sense to make upgradable phones? Hmm. But it's a cool idea, certainly for experimentation and so forth. Whether or not it's actually going to get there is another question entirely. Prototypes always look awesome. Reality is probably a bit more challenging. But there is a thing called Thunderclap, which I hadn't run across before. Which it sounds like crowdsourcing the same way that Indiegogo and Kickstarter works. Mm -hmm. But this is more of a, are you interested, you know, do you want to be in, uh, involved? Not so much money as it is just interest and focus. So that's what Thunderclap's about. And they're almost, they're 97% of their goal. So they're, they're pretty close. Awesome. Yep. Going to be interesting. The question is, would you get, if it, if it looked exactly the way the drawings look, the mock-ups look, would you get one? If I could, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It's an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Manny, thanks so much for your comment. A Tablet Show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Tablet Show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com. And with that, let me introduce our guest, Kirby Turner. Kirby is an independent software developer and chief code monkey at White Peak Software Incorporated, where he focuses on iOS and Mac programming. He's also the author of the book Learning iPad Programming, a hands-on guide to building iPad apps. And most recently, Kirby wrote and released the iOS app for PhiloSync. Well, welcome to the show, Kirby. And you uh, haven't always been an iPad Mac developer, have you? you? You did some .NET stuff way back in the day, didn't you not? I, I did, absolutely, absolutely. I I, uh, I started playing in the Microsoft world around, uh, I guess, 1992. and um was a Microsoft developer, Windows developer for a number of years. I did Delphi through the 90s and uh, back in 2000 um, at the uh, PDC in Orlando, I got my first taste of C Sharp and uh, it just reminded me how much fun Delphi was and I, I made the switch and started focusing on uh, .NET development using C Sharp. 
and uh, did that for a number of years and uh, probably mm-hmm. was doing .NET development all the way up through about 2008. And I had you in a class, didn't I? You did. You did. Uh, that was back in uh, September of uh, 2001, just a couple of weeks after uh, 9-11. Um, I was living in New York at the time and, and uh, working off of Wall Street and uh, 9-11 events happened. And so the client that I was working with uh, put everything on hold for a few weeks. And during that time, the group I was with in New York, we came up to Boston and sat in on one of your uh, .NET classes. Yeah. Those were just getting going, too. Yeah, it was uh, It was definitely an interesting time, too, because it was probably just about two weeks after the event had happened, mm. uh, after 9-11 happened. And uh, I remember everyone in my group decided to drive up to Boston because the drive between New York and Boston is only about four hours. They decided mm-hmm. to drive, but, uh, you know, I, I'm a was a firm supporter of flying even at that time, and so I decided to fly. <laughs> and uh, my wife, who uh, at the time was a girlfriend, she worked for Delta Airlines. And uh, for her, you know, it was a very big deal uh, that I right. made that decision to uh, fly up to Boston. Probably weren't very many people on the plane, huh? No, there weren't. There weren't. Yeah. A lot of people were scared to fly at the time. But I, I will say that that event, as well as uh, the weeks and months that followed, definitely shaped my career and, and – uh, you know, led me to create my company, White Peak Software, and and become kind of the slacker programmer that I am today. <laughs> so, when did you make the jump over to the Mac side? Well, like it, in two thousand and seven, um, I started. Uh, I bought my first Mac. Um, I had done um, programming for the Apple IIe back in the eighties, uh, but had you know that was a long time ago. Um, okay, so you've always been programming Apple stuff along the way. Well, off and on, but uh, but I, I from basically ninety two up until ninety eight. I mean, I'm sorry, two thousand and eight. I was pretty much a Windows developer. I was known for mm-hmm. uh, doing Windows work. I was working with a large consultancy company, uh, and uh, was their uh, chief or their their web service champion for the Northeast region and so on. So I, I was heavy into uh, .NET. Um, but I made the switch because um, in 2007, uh, they came out with a MacBook, uh, MacBook Pro, and uh, even PC Magazine and some of the other uh, review sites were saying it was the best machine for running Windows. And, um, That's right. My wife was pregnant. We were about to have a kid, and I wanted the best machine for keeping videos and pictures of my new son. And uh, mm-hmm. I had no intention of um, becoming a, um, a full-time Mac user, much less a developer. Uh, but it was only about three weeks that I had this machine uh, that I got curious, so I installed Xcode, and uh, that kind of just uh, took over. Uh, all of a sudden, again, it, it was like going uh, to C Sharp back in 2000. In 2007, I looked at Xcode, and it reminded me of all the fun I used to have when Delphi first came out back in the mid-90s. Mm. And uh, I started having fun programming again. And uh, I started tinkering around with it, and in 2008, the uh, iPhone SDK came out. At the time, it was called the mm-hmm. iPhone SDK, not iOS. Um, and um, so I started playing with that and thought, wow, this is great. I'm having a lot of fun with this. But, um, you know, at the time, I was still focusing my business on uh, .NET programming, uh, web services, building out web apps using ASP.NET and so on. Well, you are like the prototype for our perfect listener. I mean, you're somebody who has been a .NET developer for the longest time, but you were there when, you know, the sort of the iPad craze took off. 
Yeah, exactly. And had seen the transition to iPhone and iPad and all of that stuff. Exactly. And have had your feet in it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And and, I, and it was it was very interesting because I was having a lot of fun. I even released an app and put an app in the App Store um, shortly after the App Store was first introduced. So this was again back in 2008. Uh, and it was uh, my wife, as I mentioned, uh, she was pregnant. Well, at this time, she'd already had our first son. Um, and uh, so I wrote a little simple app. I, I spent the weekend writing it, and it's a labor contraction timer called LaborMate. And um, it basically is just a glorified <laughs> stopwatch for uh, pregnant women. And surprisingly, it did really well for a few years. I, I made quite a bit of money off of that 99-cent app. And um, I think it was towards the end of 2008, I, that's when the bug really kind of bit me that there was something really unique going on in the iOS world at that time, and I wanted to, to pursue it more. So at the beginning of 2009, yeah. I basically went through the process of letting all my clients know that I was leaving um, .NET programming to focus on Mac and iOS programming. Isn't it funny how sometimes the simplest programs can be the most useful? Oh, yeah. They don't have to be technically amazing and difficult to program in order to be very useful. True, very yeah. true. And the App Store was a different place back then, too. You know, you, 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 your app didn't have to, I mean, it had to have a, a certain polish to it, but it didn't have to look as unique as apps do today. Um, and uh, I think it was a lot easier back then for a uh, one-person uh, developer, you know, one-person software shop to be able to develop an app and make a, you know, a good amount of money off of that app. Uh, today, it's a lot harder. You have to have designers that are involved and, you know, app development is a whole lot more costly today. It's, it's, it really has caught up to what real software development is. So today, if you're using the full Mac stack, Objective-C and, and all of that, if you're programming for the iPhone and for the iPad, what are the main differences that you're seeing there, in, you know, the obvious things, the, the screen size and all of that, but, but where do you have to pay attention other than that? Well, it really is kind of, um, there is a huge difference, especially if you're writing something for the iPad and iPhone. The user experience is, is a lot different. The way you use the iPad uh, itself, it's a completely different device. And yes, it's, it's obvious that the screen is bigger, but because the screen is bigger, you can do a lot more with your application. And the way the user interacts with the app is a lot different. If you think about your iPhone, typically you, you're always holding it, say, in, in a portrait mode or orientation, and you do a lot of interaction with it using your thumb. You know, you just kind of stretch your thumb over. And the um, purpose of what a lot of the apps are on the iPhone are really kind of, you know, apps that you just want to get in, do something really quick, and then get back out. You know, you're standing in line uh, at the grocery store. You, you want to check something real quick. You get back out. You know, it's um, you know, you don't spend a lot of time in the app. Um, on the iPad side, it's much more of a desktop experience. Um, you, you you become more engaged. You can do more with your hands. Oftentimes, you know, you're using two hands if you're working with an app, um, or you're or you're definitely using more than one finger. Um, stretching your thumb across isn't as practical. But what I really like about the iPad is that, you know, you do have much more, a closer, um, I guess, experience to the desktop. For me, I find that just to be much more rewarding. Um, I love the, the types of apps that you can build on the iPad and, and what you can do on the iPad versus the iPhone. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I wrote an app. I'm, I'm, it's a client of mine. I can't uh, unfortunately say who it is, uh, but it's uh, an app that's in the App Store, and we wrote a universal app. A universal app is one distributable binary that runs both on the iPhone and iPad, but right, they right. have the unique experience 
Um, they had, you know, on the iPhone side, it looks like an iPhone app, and on the iPad, it looks like an iPad app, and it's optimized for the iPad. And on the iPad side, we were able to do a whole lot more with the app that we could not do on the um, iPhone side. Even doing simple things like rearranging items inside of a list, uh, we were able to take advantage of uh, drag-and-drop types of features to do a lot of rearranging that we could not do on the iPhone side. On the iPhone side, you have, say, a table view, and you'll, you'll have a cell that you'll click and hold or tap and hold, and you may move it up and down. But on the iPad, you can take a, a cell of information, and you can move it all over the screen. Um, and so those are some of the things that, you know, you get to explore on the iPad. So the experience to me is just much mm. more rich and much more rewarding. But as a developer, it's also harder. You've got, you know, it, there's a lot more that you can do. Uh, it also means there's a lot more mistakes that you can make. And uh, I find uh, find iPad programming to be uh, a bit more challenging than iPhone, even though they're using the same SDK. More screen space, more controls, more ability to... Uh more ability to utilize that space. Exactly. And what about what about um, the thumbs? I mean, the thumbs are are around the edge of the screen. Uh, is it a good idea to keep controls away from the edge of the screen so that you don't accidentally hit them with your thumb, or is it a good idea to keep them there? Or well, I mean, in general, um, what Apple has said in their HIG, their their human interface guidelines, is that um, where you Typically would have um, controls at the bottom of the screen on your iPhone. On the iPad, they recommend that you actually place them at the top. And it is for that exact reason, so that you don't accidentally thumb those types of controls. Um, a, a toolbar is a, is a good example. Toolbars typically are at the bottom of the screen on an iPhone, and you typically put those or see those at the top of a screen on an iPad app. Um, and again, it's it's just because you're... you're the way that you're holding that device is differently. Uh, you're, you're sitting back. You're, you may be holding the iPad in one hand and have your full hand, uh, your other hand, uh, free to interact with the app. Um, and so it's easy for you to touch at the top of the screen uh, as opposed to the bottom of the screen. So, you know, yeah, so there is a difference. You do tend to see more controls at the top than you do on the iPhone. Because I f- actually find that really um, a, a pain in the butt, even on regular phones, is that, you know, the buttons are all along the side. So even when you're holding it, and this, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it's something that just happens on phones that I'm not familiar with. But when somebody hands you their phone that you can interact with their app or look at something, you're, in, you're always like hitting a button by mistake. You right. know? And then you're out in some other thing. It's just, it's just crazy how, the, you know, these, these buttons have... Oh, I don't know. I'm off on a rant, but well, you know I th- no, it's, it, but it's a good rant. I mean, that that brings up another difference. I mean, oftentimes if you hand someone your iPad, they're going to grab the iPad and most likely they're going to hold it in a different orientation than what you were holding it in. So your app has to rotate. So in some ways, because of that rotation animation that's happening, um, it's less likely that the user is actually going to tap on something that would cause it to leave. But on your phone, you're right. Most applications on the phone are portrait. So you hand over your phone, and the person you're handing the phone to is going to hold the phone in the same orientation that you were holding it in. And if the screen's not locked, yeah, it's so simple to accidentally tap a button. Now, I, I agree with you on that 100%. Um, I, th- I think that's one of the reasons I like the iPad, too. It's, I just... I think you don't have those types of problems, but it's, you know, the, the app experience is different as well. I'm not going to hand over my iPhone to say, hey, look at this quick, you know, task list I just created, but I might hand over my iPad to say, watch this video or look at this photo gallery I just put together. I'm also finding that folks, I think Zuckerberg actually said this, aren't, iPads aren't actually mobile devices. They're more like laptops. You, you either leave them at home 
or if you, you, you put them down somewhere, the idea of actually on the go running around with it doesn't seem to happen near as much. Exactly. Well, that, that's what I was saying just a few minutes ago. A lot of times you, you know, apps that you use on your iPhone, you know, you've got your iPhone in your pocket, you're standing in line someplace, you pull it out, you use it for a quick moment, and then you put it back in your pocket and you're done with it. Right. Um, you know, games being kind of the exception. Um, but, you know, iPad, yeah, a lot of times you, you use your iPad when you're sitting on the couch at home. At least that's what I do. I, I find that I, I most often use my iPad when I'm going to sit on the couch, just kind of relax. I don't want to pull out the laptop. If I pull out my laptop, I feel like I'm, I'm going to go into developer mode and I'll have to load Xcode and I'll, I want to start writing code. Right. My iPad, yeah. I can ha- have that kind of, um, entertainment experience of a desktop without having to worry about writing code and doing actual work. Um, but if it's a, a quick, tasks that I need to do, you know, update a schedule, update, you know, set a calendar event, um, you know, something like that. I'll do it on my iPhone. I'm just thinking more about the UI paradigm of the iPad. Do you actually go two-handed on it or is it like you said, the one hand behind, other hand is free? Well, I think it depends on the app. Um, you know, the app that I mentioned earlier, the client app uh, that was released earlier this year, um, because of the nature of the app, it's it's a um, like a food menu uh, recipe planner app. Uh, and for that, you know, one hand use, uh, works really well. Uh, but I've actually done a lot of writing, uh, on my iPad. And in that case, I'm obviously using two hands. I just find, you know, I'll hold it in landscape and I'll start typing in landscape with it just balancing in my lap. Um, so if I'm doing blog post or something like that, or, or even writing lengthy emails, then it becomes a two hand experience, uh, for me. Um, I think generally, though, when you're interacting with apps, you, you're using one hand, but you might be using multiple fingers as opposed to one finger. On the iPhone, you might only use that one finger or your thumb. Um, Keynote is a good example. Keynote allows you to do some extra features like select multiple slides within um, your Keynote. Um, you can rearrange the order of your slide decks and so forth, and you do these with multi-finger gestures. And that's something yeah. that makes sense on the iPad, but multi-finger gesture does not necessarily make sense on the iPhone just because of the small screen. This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the tablet show. So now when you're developing a single app that runs on both, you're essentially combining two apps in one. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and I, I think that this is where, um, this is where I struggle with my, my clients. You know, a lot of times they think, well, you're writing one app. You're writing a, uh, a universal app and they see it as one app, but it really is two separate apps. And in a lot of cases, it can have two separate user experiences. 
Um, you know, going back to the sorting example, you know, the, the sorting experience on the iPad was completely different than how you sort, uh, sorted items on the iPhone. And, uh, this resulted in basically two branches of logic within the code. And in, in many ways, you really are writing two separate apps. Uh, you're just bundling it up as a single app for distribution. Now, when you do that, do you actually write two different apps and then combine them at the end? Or are you writing the same app uh, with, you know, switch statements, essentially? That's actually a great question. I mean, you, you can you can definitely uh, go the route of having a lot of if-else statements. If iPad do this, else uh, do that. Um, but if it's a large application, you know, that's going to be a nightmare to maintain. Um, you know, Objective-C is an object-oriented language, and because of that, you can take advantage of uh, class inheritance. And so one technique that works really well is to create a base class that represents all of the shared code within, say, your view controller. Uh, create a base view controller class that will um, that's compatible for both iPhone and iPad, and then derive an iPad-specific uh, version of the class and an iPhone-specific version of the class. And now that's where your code starts to um, uh, distinguish itself from iPhone to iPad, but they're independent in separate classes. And so it simplifies your code. You don't have to have a whole bunch of those if-then-else checks uh, just to see what type of device you're on. And that makes your code much more maintainable. Now, you said the different views. So I, I know there's a view and there's a model. Is there also a view model in the pattern of programming? Can you write an MVVM app? Um, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of reading about that. I think that, you know, that doesn't exist, um, by default within the Cocoa framework. Uh, it is an MVC. You have, uh, you know, move, um, view model controllers. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that that's also an aspect that, that sometimes gets lost on iPhone developers or iOS developers, especially the newer ones. Um, when they're focusing solely on the iPhone, they tend to build these very bulky monolithic view controllers. And so, you know, they try to put everything inside their view controllers and they don't really take advantage of views and models the way that they should. So that's a universal programmer problem. Then. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. It is. But if you start writing a universal app, and by universal, I mean a single app that targets both iPhone and iPad. I think uh, you start really seeing the pattern of that's a bad approach, and you want to really start separating out your code. And, um, you know, you still want to follow the MVC pattern, uh, but you do also kind of get closer to that view model approach where you start taking out more of the code um, that is only there, um, you know, that, that can, can reduce the size of your controllers themselves. Uh, for me, I don't really, my, my code base, I don't really consider it a, a view model approach. I, I view it more of as a, as a uh, service model approach. Uh, my approach is to create a, a number of service classes, and this comes from my web service days. So I actually have my models and my views and my controllers. Uh, they very, uh, they will interact with various uh, service classes, and the service classes are the ones that provide all the heavy lifting for me. Um, but it's just that's just my approach, and like I said, it kind of carries over from my uh, old web service days. So let's talk about your book, Learning iPad Programming. How is this unique or different from other iOS books? Um, well, it's different in that um, the primary goal of this book was to walk a user through, or not a user, but a reader, through the process of building an iPad application from start to finish, from prototype to app store, um, using one single app. Um, and it's an app that is available in the App Store today called PhotoWell. It's a free app. 
Um, and uh, the idea was to to really teach uh, the readers what it's like to do iOS programming in the real world. I didn't want to write a book that was just another recipe book or another cookbook. I wanted something that really showed you what it's like to 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 go from from an empty screen all the way to a functioning app to an app that you distribute to the App Store. And I think that that's what makes it unique. Nice. I, I will say, though, it, it, that if, you, if anyone is out there listening who is a programmer who decides to also become an author, writing that type of book is really hard um, because <laughs> you end up, you're in Chapter 15, you know, and you find a bug that, uh, that cropped up in, say, Chapter 8. Now you've got to go back and fix every one of those chapters to resolve that bug. So it was a, it was a painful process in writing the book. But the second edition just came out uh, a few months ago, and I'm extremely proud of it because I think you know it is the book that I wanted to write when the first edition came out. And uh, I think it does an excellent job. Based on the, the feedback I've gotten, it does a, a very good job of um, teaching people what it's like to write a real app. Well, and it, it, it's only fair, right? Because writing an app is hard, and we do find mistakes late in the game and have to go back and fix. So your book's just a reflection on the reality of what it takes to build good software. Well, I, I think, too, the, the, the other thing about the book and then the thing that I, I've gotten a, a number of feedbacks from readers on what they like about it is that it does kind of show more of a, a real-world process for building the app. I mean, it takes you the book takes you from designing the app to prototyping the app and then taking the prototype app to build the actual app. Um, and this is really kind of the, the workflow that we developers actually do in the real world. I mean, we don't just sit down and take blocks of code and just start throwing it together to build the app. Well, maybe some developers do. But for, but for good apps, you know, we actually follow a, a, a methodology in building our apps. And that's what I did with this book was to follow a methodology. But I also did some things, too, um, based on my experience um, in the real world working on a number of different client apps, um, you know, a, a book, for example, on core data. A lot of times you'll see, um, you know, something, you know, you'll read a book on core data. It'll tell you, you know, this is how you set up your core data stack. You know, uh, Xcode will do it for you when you create a new project. And, and they go through that whole sample. But when you're in the real world, now you're working on a client project and say that app is a year old, that app may not have core data. And the client says, okay, we now want to have data persistence in the app. We want you to incorporate core data. And now you've got to figure out how to manually incorporate the core data stack into your app and how to transition that app uh, to to actually be um, core data compatible. And that's something that I step you through in the book. We, we take a prototype app that has no core data support whatsoever, and then we incorporate core data. Um, so I do a lot of little things like that throughout the book that that are subtle. You don't; they're not really obvious um, when you look at the table of contents. But th- those are the subtle little differences that I put in the book, and they were all based on my experience in writing number of client apps over the last few years. What about iPad apps in the enterprise versus out to the general consumer? What are you building mostly? I mean, I, I know you have a few apps out in the uh, for the consumer side, but are you doing some corporate apps? Um, I've I've done a, a couple of corporate apps for me. Um, I haven't been in that that space as as much as I would like. I, sure. I know that there's a, a lot of movement going on. Um, the apps that I have been writing that are not um, making it into the app store, uh, they are for corporations, but they're not 
uh, enterprise apps. These are, uh, uh, in many cases, kiosk apps. Um, and oh, yeah. uh, that's what I've been uh, doing a lot of work on over the last few years as well. Uh, and these are apps where they're going to lock down the iPad. And in, mo- and in many cases, they'll actually take the iPad and put it in a, in a physical uh, container so that, you know, a user can't tap on the home button, can't hit the sleep button, um, and it runs a kiosk app. And, um, you know, I've done it uh, for marketing light bulbs. Um, these are great apps for when you go to conferences. I wrote an app for a client that they used it um, for a whole year when they were going to different conferences. It was part of their, their demo booth. And in the expos, they would actually take their iPad and instead of just staying in the booth, they would walk around the expo with an iPad in their hand so they could do a full demo right then and there of their nice. product. How did you put the app onto the iPad? In in most of those cases, if it's, say, going to be used for a conference, um, what we do is uh, we just have the client set up their own developer account with Apple, so they pay their $99. Right. And with that, you're allowed up to 100 devices. You can register up to 100 devices as development devices, and we just do the install directly on to the iPad. Uh, we don't go through any, you know, enterprise distribution and don't have to deal with the right. App Store. Um, you can take advantage of the enterprise uh, distribution model, and you can actually set up your own server, uh, and I've done this uh, as well. And as long as you register the UDIDs of these devices, you can still do an over-the-air um, deployment of the app. Um, you're just, you know, using a developer profile to distribute the um, the uh, the actual app binary itself. So there, you know, it's, it uses that model for enterprise distribution, but it kind of uh, shortcuts the process and it doesn't go through the official mechanisms. Yeah, I like that. It's it's a big enough number that, you know, a, a sales team or a conference team, you could reasonably distribute it to that and just stay that way and you bypass what seems to be an arduously complex process. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I did an app uh, two years ago. It actually was this first kiosk-like app and it was for a car dealership and uh, uh they just wanted to test it out before they rolled it out to, you know, the, I guess the car dealer owner owns a number of car shops and, uh, he wanted mm-hmm. to test it out at one of his locations, uh, first just to see how it would work. And he only needed five iPads. He only needed the application installed on five app iPads. And so, yeah, the simplest solution in that case was get you a developer account, uh, register the UDIDs under that account and just do a straight deployment from Xcode onto the device. I mean, sure. Simple, sweet, and and that's it. And even if you had a dozen dealerships, five five pads each, that's only sixty. You're still working within that account. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 that's a perfect scenario where you would want to throw the app out onto a server, and and you could even use you can use your own server to, to do that that enterprise like deployment over the air inter- enterprise like deployment, or you could even use one of the testing services like Hockey App or Test Flight. Um, you know, th- those work just as well. They, they actually do that same technique of allowing you to do a deployment uh, over the air, um, and they just kind of provide the server for you. And, and in fact, in the last year and a half, I've been pretty much doing all my deployments for these smaller apps through Hockey App. Cool. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that, that's important to know. And it's only after you get past 100. I mean, even if I was only at 150, maybe I'd just get two dev accounts. Right, right. And, and I think... Um, it seems like I just recently read they changed the rules again, but you can you can register up to 200 devices, uh, which is right. interesting. But you can only register 100 devices per year um, with a max of 200. So it's a little confusing. And if you delete an app, so so let's say that I have 50 devices registered under my account today, and that I decide to delete one of those. 
well, it doesn't free up that slot. I still have used 50 slots for this year. Um, and so right. try to get up to 200 is kind of a, uh, um, a burden. Um, but what I do again, uh, I also, I, I make sure that the client sets up their own developer account and that gives them the full right. 100 slots for the first year. Um, I would not use my company account because I need my company account so that I can do beta testing and so forth for my own apps. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't be beholden to that. They've got to do it themselves. Exactly. Exactly. But you know, as you said, for, for most companies, especially ones that just want to pilot an application where they have um, just a handful of users, it's definitely an easy way to go to dist- uh, to distribute your app without having to hit the app store and you don't have have to go through the Apple review process. That's the other benefit. Mm, right. Yeah. It's now it's totally your app. It's your app. Yep. You have control over it. Hey, Kirby, is there something that you don't like about programming iOS? I mean, you've, you've obviously had C sharp and Delphi too. Yep. <laughs> and Delphi. Yeah. Right? yeah I, you know, yeah. I, I would say that the, the one thing that, that, um, drives me crazy, and this is especially for iPad programming, um, you know, um, Xcode has, um, it's UI designers called Interface Builder. An Interface Builder is a great quick way of, of designing your UI. Uh, uses the same kind of drag and drop um, methodology that other IDEs have where you take a, a UI element and you drop it onto the design canvas. Um, and from there you can interact with it and such. But when you're doing iPad development, um, iPad screens, you know, by default, a, a non-retina iPad screen is 1040, uh, 1024 by 768. Um, and so that fills up your screen if you're trying to display that entire design canvas inside of Xcode. Unless you're running a very large monitor like a 27-inch or a greater size monitor, it's very hard to actually see the contents of, of your UI. Um, you end up having to scroll up and down, and, and it's a, it, it annoys me to no end. Um, I, I just, every time I'm doing any iPad development, either I have to switch, I have a, I do most of my development work on a MacBook Pro with Retina, either I have to switch my display to, uh, what is that higher number, um, 1920 by 1700, um, or I have to scroll around. And I would just love it if Apple or the Xcode uh, team would just allow me to zoom in and out on my design canvas and allow me to edit even if I have zoomed in and out. Um, you, you do have, if you're using storyboards, you can, uh, zoom out so you can get a complete view of what, uh, a complete look at your UI. Um, uh, but you can't do editing when you've zoomed out. And, uh, it just, it drives me insane. Uh, <laughs> you think that's something that could be fixed though? I mean, I think that's so. That's not a fundamental problem. I don't think. I don't think, think so. Uh, I think it, it should be easy, to, easy to fix. But, you know, again, you know, I, I, I've had, People come up to me and say, you know, oh, well, we need you to make this change in this app, and it should be it should be easy to fix. It should only be five lines of code, and and I'm thinking in my head, I know this code, and it's not five lines of code, and it's not an easy fix. So, yeah, for me, I think it's easy for me to say, yeah, it's easy for the Xcode team to fix this, but it, it you know, there's probably a good reason that they haven't done it. Um, hmm. But but you know, it does frustrate me, especially if I you know, since I do a lot of my development work from a laptop, um, that I cannot get a full view of that UI without changing my screen resolution or connecting to a large monitor. And uh, that frustrates me. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's, you know, if, if that's my only complaint, then that, that's a good complaint Yeah, to that's have. not bad. I mean, no. the, you should have heard some of the complaints we heard from .NET developers when we started this show. <laughs> you know, it, it, Xcode has uh, gotten really, really good from, you know, from when we started. 
That that's actually you know that's really interesting too because when you started Xcode, I guess that was probably Xcode three, right? Um, and yeah. Xcode three at the time, Interface Builder was a separate process. So if you wanted to design, so you had your IDE, which was just really a, a glorified text editor, and then if you wanted mm. to do UI work, you you used um, um, Interface Builder, um, but it was a separate app, and you know right. one app could launch the other app. Um, and Xcode and Interface Builder had a way to keep in sync. There was a little, a little green button at the bottom of the display that would show you yeah. if if the the two were in sync and it returned gray if for some reason Xcode and Interface Builder weren't in sync when you're looking at your your UI. And um, that was coming from the Visual Studio world. That was extremely frustrating for me. Right. Why should that be up to you to keep them in sync? Yeah. yeah. And why did I need a separate um, app? And, and another thing that was frustrating coming from the the, the uh, Windows world, you know, with um, Visual Studio and such, I was in the habit of, let's say, for example, I would take a button. I wanted to implement the event for a uh, the click event for a button. So I I drag a button from the object library, drop it on my design canvas, and you would double click on it, and it drops you right into your C sharp code. Um, and I'm assuming Visual Studio still does that today, but it's, it's, you know, at, at one time that's the way it worked. And I'm assuming it still does. With Xcode, that's not the way it works. You take a button, you drop it onto your design canvas, you don't double click it and jump straight into code. And, um, mm. it, for me, back when Xcode 3 was around, it was a huge paradigm switch to go from Visual Studio to Xcode. Um, when Xcode yeah. 4 came out, uh, and I saw it at WWDC when they did the uh, the developer preview. My first thought was, it's Visual Studio. Now it turns yeah. out it's it's not quite the same as Visual Studio. There are still some of those those differences, but yeah, they definitely have improved on it and and brought it in line with Visual Studio. And uh, you know, it's 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 a great IDE. I, I I really enjoy working with it. And what about the language Objective C? Is there is there stuff that you miss about C Sharp in Objective C? Well, you know. Um, I actually think I prefer Objective C over C Sharp, and the primary reason is is I I came from the Pascal world, and I was doing Delphi mm. programming before C Sharp, and um, for me I like the verboseness of Objective C because uh, yeah. it, it reminds me of my Pascal days. I I like those kind of verboseness of, of Pascal. I like the fact that my interface and my implementations are defined in separate blocks uh, of code. Mm. Um, so I actually you know, I guess it's it's you know it's like trying to teach a, an old dog new tricks. I, I prefer it. Sure, um, it's so comfortable. It is comfortable. Um, and since yeah. you know, I started writing C code back in geez, 1983. So for me, mm. it was like going back home. So okay. for me, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I actually kind of liked the stepping away from C sharp. But I will say, you know, when I started doing C sharp um, back in 2000. Um, it brought the fun back to programming for me. It was such a great language. When was the last time you messed around with C Sharp? Uh, it would have been um, the, uh, the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, because 2009 oh, is when I started doing the transition. We've got some good stuff now. Yeah? Yeah, async await, uh, link, uh, all sorts of great stuff. Well, I, I should mention that FileSync, the the uh, the app or solution that you mentioned at the uh, in the introduction, right now it supports yeah. Mac and iOS, uh, but we're working on a Windows client as well. I mean, because it's it's if we're going to do FileSync and you have to support all the major OSs, I probably will be getting back into Windows development very soon. <laughs> all right, so FileSync, F-I-L-O-S-Y-N-C dot com. Tell us about this app. 
Uh, well, this app is um, the 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 easiest way to describe it is it's um, Dropbox um, for the individual who wants ultimate control. Uh, it's a file syncing and sharing solution. It's built on top of uh, AWS, so Amazon's Web Services, um, and you host your own server, um, and the server is completely locked down. All the data is encrypted. It uses S3 for data storage uh, of your information. All the information stored on S3 is encrypted, uh, so it's it's completely secured. Uh, but unlike Dropbox and some of those types of solutions, this stays within your control. So you have complete control of of the servers uh, and so forth. This is great. You know, I, I started writing something like this myself and got distracted as I normally do. But lots of companies don't trust their data in their files to the, you know, a Dropbox company. Correct. Yeah, exactly. That's basically what it's all about. You want control. Exactly. Love exactly. It. Um, and. And you, you pointed out something that, that's key here. A lot of companies think that way. You know, um, we just released, uh, FollowSync just went live this week. And, um, a lot of us, you know, made posts on Twitter and, and so forth. And so a lot of consumers came looking for it as an alternative to Dropbox. Yeah. And, and while right. we do see that, you know, this is something that consumers, uh, would be interested in, consumers are also kind of concerned, well, if I have to pay for an Amazon server, even though that, that, that may be, you know, $60 a month or something like that, that's too expensive for the consumer. And we really mm. design FollowSync primarily for businesses, for those types of companies, mm. law firms, um, Medical clinics, those types of companies who are not allowed to use a file syncing service such as like Dropbox right. or BoxNet, um, you know right. that really is kind of more of our sweet spot. We really want to focus on those companies who either don't trust um, one of the other um, uh, bigger guys, or legally or through other restrictions, are not allowed to use one of those other guys. Yeah, very good. Well, I wish you continued success with that. That's fantastic. Well, thank you. And uh, if there's anything that I can do to help you with the, the C-sharp version of that, I have some code, like I said, that, that's already done that. But you prob you're probably all over it. And you know what? Forget that I said that because I want you to get back in and see what uh, C-sharp <laughs> is like since 2009. <laughs> well, I, I definitely and come back and tell me what you think. I, 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 <laughs> I definitely think that uh, Visual Studio is in my, in my near-term future. Sweet. Hey, thanks. It's been a great almost hour talking with you. And as I said, I think you're a great prototype for our listener. You know, somebody who's really had their feet in both sides of uh, development here. Thanks. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's been a great, a lot of fun, and I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, no. Perfect. The less we talk, the better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much, but it needs a lot. Just try.